Our text this morning is from Esther 9, 1 through 2. You'll find that on page 415 in the Bible in the chair in front of you. Now on the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated. Thanks, Jacob. So this morning we are finishing up uh, the, the text of Esther. We have one more sermon in the series next week. We're going to be hearing that from First Peter. Um, then we've got a couple of weeks of different things, and then uh, we'll be uh, heading into Romans 6 leading up to Easter. So lots of good things in the future here. So as a recap, very quickly from last week, Haman was dispatched. It was a gory situation. You can read about that in Esther 5 through 7. But uh, the problem is, even though Haman has, is gone, uh, his plan is still in play. So if you've heard the, uh, the saying, the law of the Persians and the Medes, you may not have, that might be like a dorky pastor thing, I don't know. Um, it, uh, it's a real thing. So in this day and age, in the, the kingdom of Persia, when the king would sign an edict with his ring, it couldn't be undone even by the king himself. And so uh, as we saw Xerxes kind of pass the buck to Haman, Haman wrote an edict and he had the ability to seal that edict with the king's ring. So still, even though Haman is dead, the plan for the 13th day of the 12th month is that the Jews will be annihilated. That's the plan. It's still in play. And so as we come to this point in the story, what have we seen? We've seen God working, God working. He works quietly in the lives of these Jews and Esther and Mordecai, he works quietly in our lives most of the time. What's he working towards? Not the completion of our plan or, or our agenda, but his plan. His plan to save his people is what God is always working toward. And so we saw God use Mordecai and Esther through their obedience. We know that God uses us in the same as we obey in just simple ways. God is using that to, to march his plan forward. It was interesting last week to see how God even used Haman's disobedience, his evil deeds, to march his plan forward. And so all these things, God working, God working, God working, has brought us to this point in the story. And so today's sermon, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're listening online or here in person, listen, this sermon, this passage of scripture, this whole book of Esther is a message of hope. It's a message of hope. Uh, life is hard. Our lives hurt. People sin. We sin. We sin against each other. We do sinful things. We receive the not so good benefits of people doing sinful things. We have a lack of trust big time in our God. We have insecurities. We don't know what's going to happen next. All these things are things we deal with. We feel confusion. We feel overwhelmed. We feel terror at times in our lives. And, and that all is real life. But the truth of this book 
of the Bible. The truth that we're gonna see from this passage today is a backdrop to all that, and the truth, which is unchangeable, we can't do anything about it, gives us hope. So whether we're Christians or not Christians, there is this idea that there is actually hope in this tumultuous, sometimes terrible life. And so what is that truth? What's the truth that this book clearly declares? What's the truth that is what it is? We can't do anything about it. It just is what it is. We don't have to wonder though. That's the good news. We don't have to wonder what God is saying to us. Here's the truth. God works his plan until it's finished. God works his plan until it's finished. God finishes what he starts. God finishes what he starts. Let me pray for us. Then we'll take a look at the the winding down of this story from Esther. Father in heaven, I pray for my heart. I pray for our hearts. Uh, We are helpless sinners, every single one of us. We can't help ourselves in more ways than one. And so to hear that you have a plan and that you're going to finish that plan, that we're part of that plan, my goodness, what hope there is in that truth. And so my prayer this morning is that you would spark new hope in my heart, in the heart of those listening, through your scripture, through your word this morning. We pray these things in the name of the one who gives hope, Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, as we heard, Haman's gone, but there's still kind of three main characters that are hanging on and they all have a role in the remainder of the story. We're gonna look at Esther, we're gonna look at Xerxes, or as you hear us, we're gonna look at Mordecai. So let's just rip the Band-Aid off. What's Esther doing in uh, Esther 8 through 10? If you look at your Bibles, you can look at Esther 8 and you can see in verses three through six, Esther is begging in humility. That's what's happening. So Haman's gone. The edict's still in play. Esther comes to the king again and begs in humility. Again, Esther 8, 3 through 6. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. So again, remember, when you come into the court of the king in Persia, he's got to hold out his golden scepter, and, and, he's, and that means you can live. If he doesn't, you're toast. Um, so when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. And what did she say? She said, if it please the king, if I have found favor in his sight, if this thing seems right before the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? King Xerxes is really, truly the only path that Esther sees to having this edict undone. But again, remember, the law of the Medes and the Persians. It can't be undone. It can't be undone by the king. And so we see Esther begging in humility. We see Esther at her probably most humble, most obedient, most faithful, most brave. Remember the last time she went before the king? She went with some hesitancy. If I perish, I perish. But here she comes boldly in obedience to save her people. And so she asked the king, please undo what has been done. Let's pause here for a moment. Remember, Esther is a comedy, okay? It's a comedy about the power of the Persians. It's it's what it is. The the, the author is, in some sense, rightly making fun of what doesn't actually exist. So think about, excuse me, Xerxes. Think about all the moments he's made decisions in this book. Does he really have power? Not really. 
And in this moment, his lack of power is probably seen in its greatest glare. He, he oftentimes passes the buck. He doesn't know what's going on in his kingdom. He says to Haman, you write the edict about the Jews. And when Esther calls Haman out, what does he say? Who, what are you talking about? He doesn't know what's going on. And here, a, an edict has been signed in his name and, and his own power takes away his power. He can't do anything about it. And so you look at the king's response in Esther 8, 7 through 8, and you can hear he's listening to, to, to Esther, but he's listening in helplessness, and he responds with defensiveness. So take a look. Then King Azuhira said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, behold, he's going to brag for a moment about what, he like, what he's done, okay? This is his defensive response. I've given Esther the house of Haman. And they hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. That's an excuse, all right? He's, he's building himself up because what's about to come out of his mouth is not good news. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be re revoked. So much like Xerxes pass the buck to Haman, you figure it out. What's he saying to Mordecai and his lovely bride Esther? You guys can figure it out. <laughs> You guys can figure it out. I'm not doing, any, doing anything about it. There's nothing I can do about it. So here, Xerxes once again passes the buck, but thankfully he passes the buck to Mordecai who acts in wisdom. Look at Esther 8, 9 through 14. I'm just gonna read a couple verses here. We're going quickly through the story. Um, and so here's what Mordecai does. The king says, all right, you guys figure it out. Here's the people that write my edicts. He says in verse nine, the king's scribes were summoned at that time. Skip to verse 11. So a plan was devised by Mordecai to get all the fastest horses to send a letter to all the places in the whole kingdom from India to Ethiopia. And here's what the new edict said. It's not something that could undo the last one, but it's gonna act in partnership with the last edict. So uh, this edict says that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. And so then that letter goes out. What's happening? Uh, this second edict accompanies the other, and it's basically uh, a law that allows the Jews to defend themselves without uh, repercussions from the law. So if, if the, the first edict had stood without the second, if the Jews at all tried to defend themselves, they would have been breaking the law, and so even if they survived, it wouldn't have been good anyway. But here, Mordecai writes an edict that allows them to defend themselves. And so what happens? What's the result? We've already read it. Esther 9, 1 through 2. The enemy's attack, the day has come, and it says now in the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, on the 13th day, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. What happens? God's people are victorious. They're victorious. Now, to us, as we've been tracking this story along, this is probably not a surprise, all right? This is probably not a surprise. But if you take this moment and realize and plug, it, this, informa plug this information in that this is how it was always going to turn out, in every moment of, of uh, uncertainty, what's gonna happen to Esther and Mordecai and the Jews? This is how it was going to go. This was God's plan to save his people. 
If you take that information and you plug it into the rest of the story, you get a much deeper meaning all the way through. Every aspect we've talked about so far gains deeper meaning. First, those who seemed weak, excuse me, those who seemed weak, they're actually strong. Those who seemed weak at the beginning of the story are actually strong. Those who were despised, think about Mordecai, how much Haman hated his guts. Those who were despised are actually honored. Those who are powerless are actually the ones who are given power. Now, how is any of that possible? It's not possible because Esther was a great person or Mordecai was a great person or the Jews were great people. All of that was possible because God was working. God was working. God was working. His plan was, came to fruition. He did the work. And so all of those things, the weak being strong, the despised, honored, all those things are because God worked. God worked. And so here's the bald-faced truth. That's a backdrop of the Christian life. The bald-faced truth that's true for all of us, whether we believe it or not, we can't do anything about it. Here's the truth. God's plan is never a halfway plan. God's plan is never abandoned. God's plan is never in question. That's the truth. God has a plan and it will come to pass. End of truth, okay, that's it. That's the backdrop of our lives. I don't do this very often, um, but I'm gonna quote to you from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, What is the Westminster Confession of Faith, you might be asking, it's a summary of reformed Presbyterian theology and they get the information in the Westminster Confession from scripture, it's not scripture itself, but it's again, a great summary of biblical truth. So in Westminster Confession, chapter 5.1, here's what it says about God and his ability to, to follow through on his plan. Here it goes. God, the great creator of all things, upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least. How does he do it? By his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge, the free and unchanging counsel of his will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. What is that all saying? It's saying this, God controls everything. God controls it. There's nothing outside of it. And why does he do it? Just because, no, he does it for his own glory, to be worshiped. This is to be excited about, not begrudging against. God controls, praise his name. Now, to to look at that from scripture, I love that this is in the Bible, Daniel 4. We get an expression of this truth from the mouth of a king of Persia. Do you understand the significance of this? A heathen king in the kingdom that we're talking about in Esther declares this truth. Now, this is much, much longer before Xerxes. There was a king named Nebuchadnezzar. It's fun to say. Um, Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was an arrogant guy. He wanted to be worshipped by his kingdom. And so there's one day, he's out on his balcony, and he's looking out on his kingdom, and he's just high on himself. He's like, man, I am, I'm the Neb. He's what he called himself. That can't his third person, weird nickname. That's the kind of guy he was. Um, <clears throat> the Neb loves the Neb. All right, I don't know. That's not in the Bible. That is not in the Bible. Um, 
And so what happens is God to, he had plans for Nebuchadnezzar, okay? So God to knock him back, to, to bring humility in his life, God causes him to go insane for a, a period of time, to go insane. He thinks he's a, a wild animal for a portion of his life. And so what happens is God brings him out of this state and the first thing Nebuchadnezzar says is this. I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion or his rule is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? My prayer is that gives you chills. This is not something to begrudge. This is something to celebrate about God, that his dominion is forever and now, that nobody can stop him doing from what he wants to do, and nobody can say to him with justice, what are you doing, how dare you do that? That's not how it works. In church, that's from the mouth of a heathen Persian king. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And so as we think about this idea that God has a plan, it will succeed, and this being a backdrop for our lives, what does that change for us here and now? What's the application of that here in our lives? And I think what we can do is we can match some examples from Esther. I mean, there's a thousand different ways this applies to our lives. Let's just get that straight. But let's just do two, okay? First, what did God do in Esther? What do we see God do in Esther? He brought justice against evil, all right? He did that with Haman and against those who hated the Jews. So in our lives, let me just say this. <clears throat> Some of you are in the hardest times you've ever known. Some of you are in the hardest situations you've ever known. You never thought this would happen. You never thought whatever. You, there's a whole list of things you could say. You never thought you'd face something like you're facing right now. That's the truth. And so when you put the backdrop of God's plan will succeed, that he is in control, that the glory belongs to him, this whole new thing, that God is in it, he's gonna use this time, not necessarily to bring about your agenda, but certainly to bring about his. He's working out your salvation. The idea that he's promised justice and mercy, not temporary justice and mercy like Esther and Mordecai had. Think about this. Certainly the Jews were saved in Persia, but after Persia, the Greeks showed up and that was actually a worse time for them. And then the Romans, this was not a permanent salvation of God's people. He was saving that for something else, for us through Jesus. And so justice, mercy, God's plan, these things are permanent and they're promised to us. It brings hope in hard times. Well, something else God did in Esther, he saved his people. Church, think about this. Think about the ramifications of this. God's plan to save his people will not fail. That means no one whom God has set his eye upon will escape his hand. <laughs> Nobody. And it goes further than that for us, church. God also said, I will use my church to bring in those who don't know Jesus. We're part of that plan. We don't just sit back and watch. God has said, you, church, will be a part of that plan to see people come to know me. And so through all the twists 
in terms of Esther, only one outcome was possible and the same is for us. Through all the twists and turns of our lives, of this church, of any church, there's only one possible outcome that God's church, his people will be gathered in. They will stand, they will not fail, they will not fall. And we're part of that. That's, that's a great hope for our lives. And so this truth that God's plan never fails, that he controls all things. It's a truth that changes right now, the right now for those who are in Christ. And so Christian, listen. In this life, there's toil, there's temptation, there's tragedy, all those things are true. So nothing about the gospel says those things end once you know Jesus, those things continue as you know Jesus. But here's the difference. Here's the difference between those who have them and those who don't. In the life of a Christian, there's the presence of God. There's the power of God. And there's the promises of God that are absolutely true that we can't do anything about. And so as we face life and all the things that it throws at us, we don't have to sit helplessly or hopelessly. How does this end? I don't know. That's not how we live, Christians. That's not how we're designed to live. We don't look at the bleakness of life with confusion, feeling overwhelmed, thinking, well, what do I do next? Where's hope gonna come from? We don't have to wait for God to act because he's acted already. Are we reminded of that? This is it. This is the Christian life. This is the life that God works in the one we have right now. We don't have to wait for some secondary event where God delivers us from either pain or sin or something. This is what God works with. <laughs> I'm pointing at myself. It's a joke, right? This is what God's working with. And it's a mess. But there's hope in it. Why? Because God acted. He sent Jesus Christ on the cross. He, and, and with that is a seal of, of promise. My people will be saved. And there's great hope in that. And so as we live the life we have right now, we're not waiting for something else. The life we live right now, because God has acted, because his plan will come to fruition, what can we do, Christian? We can move forward, staying close to God's word. We can move forward in humble dependence and prayer. We can move forward in obedience. We can move forward through the mundane. We can move forward with humility and wisdom. How could we possibly do that? Because we know that God is working his plan to the very, very, very end. For those of you who are either listening online or you're here and, and maybe you're not a Christian, I want you to consider the idea of hope this morning. Consider the idea of hope. Your life is actually not that different from a Christian's life. You also have toil, you also have temptation, you also have tragedy, it's not different. We live this, in the same world, we have the same problems. But I want you to consider that there is a different backdrop that you can live your life with. You don't have to figure it all out. You don't have to know what's coming next. You don't have to feel like you're not a mess. You can be a mess and knowing that God is in control and God has done the thing that you need and that it's a sure thing, it brings hope. And so 
How could God do that? How does God save his people? How does God bring hope? Here's how he did it. He sent himself to the earth in a man named Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And what Jesus did is he lived this perfect life. He never sinned. He did the things we were supposed to do. He did them without complaining. He did them gladly, following his father. And then at the end of that life, he died a death that, guess what? I deserved it. I deserved because of my sin that I still commit to be nailed to a cross, to die in my sins. And instead, Jesus took that punishment for me and for you. And then, thankfully, that's not the end of the story. He rose again from the grave. What does rising from the grave, what does resurrection of a, of a body do? It defeats death. It defeats sin. And then he ascended into heaven to be an advocate. Why did he do this? He did all of that. He did all of that to secure our salvation, to save us, to save us from helplessness and hopelessness, to save us from trying to work this out ourselves. And so as you hear that message this morning, we call the collection of all those truths about Jesus, we call it the gospel, the good news. And as you hear the good news this morning, here's what's happening. God is calling every man and every woman and every child to himself. He's calling you by name saying, depend on me. Depend on me. He's calling you to say, come and find rest in Jesus Christ. There is no rest in yourself. You can't do it. So I've done it for you. So this morning to those who don't know Jesus, since life is full of turmoil, I implore you, turn to the one who's conquered it, Jesus Christ, in faith, and be saved. Put your trust in the one who finishes what he starts. In just a moment, we're gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper, and it's a celebration. It's a celebration of the work that God has done. Our work at best is shoddy, okay? Our work at best is shoddy. Uh, maybe at best it's actually just not work at all. It's, it's bad. Um, and so when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we come forward, we're celebrating the fact that we are participants in free salvation. Free salvation. We can't do it. We didn't do it. We're not good enough, handsome enough, pretty enough. We didn't dress right. We, we can't do anything right enough to come and earn this on our own. And so we celebrate the fact that we depend on another, Jesus Christ. God does the work. And so this morning, as you witness people coming up this aisle to eat a little piece of bread and drink a little cup of something, they're, they're saying something about themselves. They're saying, I am hopeless and helpless without Christ. And I believe that his end is secure and true. And I believe in Jesus. It's not about us, it's about him. So this morning, church, if you come forward, you're declaring that you're a believer, that you believe, first of all, you are a sinner. You can't overcome that on your own. And so you, you heard the good news, you responded to the good news, Jesus Christ covered it, praise the Lord. You believe that. You've been baptized, McKinley, you're in, all right? You've, you've made that profession of faith, you confessed your sins this morning. If those things are all true, God says, come and celebrate with me on my dime. He says that. If you don't believe those things, first of all, the, the Bible makes it clear this is not a supper that makes any sense for you to participate in. 
We're not excluding you, it just it doesn't make sense. You don't have that testimony, so don't make that testimony. But also I would say, if you, if you can't make that testimony, don't stop there. Ask the hard questions. Seek it out, don't just brush it off. If you feel something like, man, I really wanna know more about this, myself, any of our elders, anybody here, Steve, will we want to talk to you about it. There's no pressure in it. We're not trying to close a deal. We just wanna hear about your life and talk to you about these things. So we invite you to do that. Let's take a moment of quiet prayer. One more before we participate. Once we're done with that, I'll gather us back together with a prayer of blessing and we'll distribute the Lord's Supper. Father in heaven, I want to thank you personally that I will never be free of my need for you in this life. I'll never be free from my need, my desperate need for you. And some in the world might say that is weakness, but as we've heard from Esther, those who are labeled as weak by the work of God are seen to actually be strong, and so Lord, thank you for working in the lives of these saints here today. Thank you for working quietly. Thank you for not working for our agenda, but for your own. Thank you for working through our obedience. Thank you also for working through evil in this world by bringing destruction on itself. Thank you, thank you, thank you that you finish what you start. And that you give us something like the Lord's Supper to sustain us along the way until that finish is upon us. So I pray this morning that you would bless this bread, bless this juice and this wine, that it would be a moment of filling up of hope. That we would remember amongst all the toil, temptation and tragedy, that we have a backdrop of certainty that we live our lives in. And that's you your dominion, your infallible wisdom, your unchanging love for us. And so Lord, I pray that you would bless this Lord's Supper just in that way. Nourish us in hope. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.